That is good news, isn't it? Nothing that we can do, it's already done. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Last Sunday, we were looking at the very last portion of this chapter where Paul brings to a climax everything that he's been saying about our future hope in Christ. And in verses 35 through 39, Paul begins to list off all kinds of things and all kinds of different categories of people, events, circumstances that could get in the way, that could possibly derail our salvation, our relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in verse 35, he asked the question, who is it that can separate us from the love of Christ? Can trouble, any trouble that enters into our lives, can it separate us from Christ? What about hardships or difficulties that we may go through? What about persecution for the cause of Christ? What about absolute destitution in hunger, famine, nakedness? What about having to face death itself for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ and face the sword, as many Christians had to do in the early centuries of the church? Can any of those things separate us from the love of Christ? In verse 36, Paul quotes from Psalm 44, reminding us that persecution is common for those who follow Christ. He says, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So can any of these things separate us from Christ? He says in verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are winning a most glorious victory, he says, through him who loved us, through Christ. And then he, he begins another list. Asking again, can any of these things separate us from God? He says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, the greatest enemy that we could possibly face at the end of our lives, death. Death cannot separate us. What about anything that happens in our lives? Nothing can separate us. What about, what about supernatural powers? Spirits and demons and powers that we cannot even see. Angels and demons and powers. No, they cannot separate us from God. Well, what about, what about anything that may take place in the future? No, he says nothing that's in the present, that's happening right now in your life. Nothing in the future that could ever potentially happen can separate you from God. Neither height nor depth. And, and by the way, in all of these pairs that, that Paul is using, he's intentionally using opposites. So death and life, height and depth. He's using these opposites because he wants us to know that everything is included between these two opposites. So death and life, that's everything, isn't it? Well, height and depth, the highest height that you can imagine, 
the lowest depth that you can imagine, and everything in between. Nothing can separate us from God. And then just to make sure that we understand and get the point, he says, nor anything else in all of creation. Any other created thing, anything that you could possibly imagine, even in the most wild dream or science fiction fantasy that you could imagine, any potential being, creature, force, power, cannot separate you from God, from his love. And then last week, as we were getting toward the end of the message, I asked a question that I wanted to pursue more this morning. And that question is this. Okay, Paul, so so none of these things can separate us from Christ. But these are all external things to us. What about we ourselves? Can we ourselves separate us from Christ? Can we lose our salvation? Can we lose our security that we have in Christ by something that might that we might do? Can we separate ourselves from the love of Christ? And that has been one of the debates throughout all of church history, going all the way back to the time of the apostles in the New Testament. And that is this, is the believer in Jesus Christ eternally secure or not? There are all sorts of denominations today that will answer that in the no. Believers in Christ are not eternally secure. That it is possible for, they will say, a true believer of Christ to walk away from the faith, to apostatize, to to sin in some great way, and so lose their salvation, to fall from grace if you will. And so let me just name off some of these. The the whole Methodist tradition, Methodist Wesleyan tradition, believes that you can lose your salvation. And so that would include Pentecostals and Charismatics as well. So most of that whole tradition of that comes out of the, the Methodist Wesleyan tradition, the Nazarene church, Pentecostals, Charismatics, the Anglican Church, many of them believe that you can lose your salvation. Church of Christ believes that you can lose your salvation. Some Lutherans believe you can lose your salvation. Roman Catholics believe you can lose your salvation. So many, many denominations in the Christian church believe that you can lose your salvation. That is, you can be in Christ, in grace, but then fall from it and be eternally condemned. And I just want to ask the question, is is that what the Bible teaches? That we can be separated from the love of God, from the love of Christ, by something that we do. And I think really to put this in one main idea that, that I think will be very clear for us all to understand And that is, I think the question ultimately comes down to this. Who is responsible for our salvation? It ultimately comes down to that. Who is responsible for our 
salvation. Or to use the language of Hebrews, who is the author and the finisher of our faith? Who is the one that is responsible for our salvation? And I'm just going to say up front that I believe that those who teach that a believer in Christ, a true believer in Christ, can lose his or her salvation, that that is not biblical teaching. That the whole message of Scripture is that those who are in Christ, those Jesus has died for, those whom he has laid down his life for, those whom he has called, those whom he has justified, they will be without fail glorified. And for those who come to the end of Romans 8 and say, yes, none of those things, none of those external things can separate us from the love of Christ, but it's possible for us to, that we might do something, we might fall, we might trip up, we might walk away, we might wander off the path, we might commit some great sin and lose our salvation. To me, those who would say that undercut the whole point of Romans 8. The whole point of Romans 8. And what I want to do just for a few moments is is I kind of want to walk back through Romans 8. Not every verse, but just show some of the highlights from Romans 8 to show why if you come to that conclusion that a believer in Christ can lose his or her salvation, that basically you're undercutting the whole message of the whole chapter. How did the chapter begin? Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. How much of a promise is that? How much of a hope is that if there can still be condemnation? So Paul says that if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. Well, let me ask you, when, does, when would that condemnation happen? That condemnation would happen at the judgment seat, wouldn't it? Standing before God at the end of time, when God would say, or as the, the parable in Matthew 25, Jesus says, on that day the Son of Man will look out, and there will be the sheep on the one hand, the goats on the other And he will say to those on his right, go into the everlasting kingdom of your Lord. To those on his left, go into eternal condemnation. So ultimately, the sentence of condemnation takes place at the judgment, right? So when Paul says, for those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation at the judgment. What kind of hope or promise is that if it's possible for some who are in Christ to face condemnation at the judgment? He says a little bit later on in chapter 8, he's talking about the Holy Spirit that we have. And he says that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, this is in verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, then they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, verse 10, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. 
what kind of a hope is it if God gives us the spirit, but the spirit is not effective enough to keep us from falling? What kind of a hope is it if the Holy Spirit that God has given to us cannot keep us from falling? This verse says that those who are in Christ have the Spirit, and because they have the Spirit, they will be resurrected at the end of time and will be given life. What kind of a promise is it if that never happens? He says, those who are led by the Spirit of God, this is in verse 14, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And in a, in a, in later on, he says, those who are the children of God, they have been adopted. Verse 15. You're no longer slaves. You don't need to live in fear again. The spirit that you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. What kind of a family would it be for a father to adopt a child and then later on say, you're no longer my son? You're no longer my daughter. And to go back on that adoption. Verse 16 says that the spirit that God has given to us, he testifies with our spirit that we in fact are God's children. And if we are his children, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with Christ. One day we will share an inheritance with the Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of a promise is that if it never happens? He goes on to talk about the glory that will be revealed in us. In verse 18, he says, yes, right now we're going through present sufferings, but that's nothing compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. There's a future glory coming. Not only for us, but for all of the creation. And he says, one day we, as God's people, will receive a a renewal, the redemption of our bodies, our glorification. And verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. What kind of a salvation is it if you are lost? Can ultimately be lost. What are you saved from? Even this language of saved. You are saved. What are you saved from? Aren't you saved from the consequences of your sin? Saved from condemnation? Saved from the judgment of God? So if you then can fall back into that state of condemnation, how could you ever say that you were saved? To me, the greatest argument for the fact that a true believer in Christ cannot fall away or be lost is found in verses 29 and 30. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Again, we talked about this when we were in verses 29 and 30, that the idea of foreknowledge there is not 
is not the idea of God looking down through time and seeing what would happen. Some, especially those who teach that a person can lose their salvation, some take the view that foreknowledge, all it means is that God looked down through time and he saw what people would do. He saw their choice of faith and therefore predestined them on the basis of their choice of faith. Think about this. I read this statement, and I think that this perfectly encapsulates the flaw of that argument. And that is this. There is no knowledge that comes from outside of God. There is no knowledge that comes from outside of God. So this statement that God looked down through time and he saw something, that implies that he learned something that he did not previously know. God can't do that. God can't take in knowledge or learn something new that he did not already know. All knowledge, all truth, all facts, all possibilities are all and for all of eternity within the eternal infinite mind of God. There's no knowledge or fact or event happening that can come to God's mind from outside of his mind. It's already there. So, which means then, when God said, let there be light, and started this whole process, he knew exactly what was going to happen. How did he know it? Because he planned it. And he launched the plan in action when he said, let there be light. So foreknowledge isn't God just looking down and seeing what's going to happen as if he's watching a movie and he gets a preview. That's not how God's knowledge works. No, this idea of foreknowledge comes from the Hebrew idea of knowing, which that is to know someone in an intimate sense, to know someone in a relational way. And so when this says that God foreknew, it means that he knew people in a relational way, in a loving way, and he loved them in advance. In advance of what? Not only in advance of their existence, of them being born, but in advance of creation itself from before the foundation of the world. So he set his love, his affection on people before the beginning of time. And he predestined that those same people would be conformed to the image of his son, ultimately in glorification. And then he goes on to say this in verses 29 and 30. And to me, there is no mistaking what Paul is saying here. He says, those whom God foreknew, these he also predestined. Same group. And the, and the emphasis that Paul makes could not be clearer. The ones whom God foreknew, these he also predestined. And these he predestined, these he also called. And the calling there is not merely the external call of the gospel, while that's involved. The call that is particularly in view here is the internal effectual call of the Holy Spirit. 
that those who not only hear the gospel, but also hear the voice of the spirit who gives life, they come alive and they believe. So the same ones that God loved in advance of time are the same ones that he determined in advance of time to glorify in Christ. And they are the same ones that in time, at a moment in our lives, he called us effectually through the gospel and by the renewing work of his Holy Spirit. And that same group of people are the ones who are justified. And those same ones who are justified are the same ones who are glorified. And there is not a single soul that is lost in that process. From foreknowing, through predestination, through calling, through justification, through glorification, not one soul is lost. And that's exactly what Jesus said when he came. And in John chapter 6, he says, I came to do the will of my Father. And what is the will of my Father? That of all of those that he has given to me, I should lose none. But raise him up at the last day. So, If it is possible for a true believer in Christ, a child of God, to fall away from the faith and be lost, then Jesus has not accomplished the will of the Father. And that's impossible. Because when he hung on the cross, he said, it's done. It's finished. I have accomplished the will of the Father. And so the whole message of Romans 8, the whole purpose for what Paul is doing in Romans 8 is to provide the exact sort of hope and confidence that those who deny eternal security undercut when they say that it's possible to lose your salvation. His whole point in Romans 8 is to undergird the thought that it is impossible for a child of God to be lost. That's the whole purpose in writing this passage, is to give them assurance, comfort. In the midst of their sufferings, in the midst of their hardships, there is nothing that can tear them away from Christ. And one commentator, this is Tom Schreiner, he he very very astutely pointed out the fact that what are the things that would cause someone to fall away from Christ anyway? They're the exact kind of things that Paul lists in this chapter. Persecution for the name of Christ, hardship, trouble, difficulty, famine, nakedness. Those are the kinds of things that would cause someone to fall away. And and Jesus says, I will lose none. And Paul says, none of those things can separate us from Christ. None. Just a couple more questions for us to, to think about this. When Paul says that neither death nor life can separate us from Jesus, wouldn't that include everything that takes place in our lives? When Paul says neither the present nor the future, wouldn't that include anything that might possibly happen in the future? 
that we would do? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so it all comes down to this. Who is responsible for our salvation? And the answer is, it's God. It is all, all, with no asterisks, no fine print, no little footnotes of exceptions. It is all of God's grace. From first to last. So that those whom he has loved from before the foundation of the world, he will love for all of eternity in glory because he will not fail to bring them home. God cannot fail. Jesus cannot fail. And no one, not even yourself, is able to pluck you out of your father's hand. Because no one's greater than your father. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the promises of your word. We thank you that ultimately our salvation does not depend upon us. It does not depend upon our works, either in the past, in the present, or in the future. But it all depends on the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness by which we are saved, not our own. And because he has achieved perfect righteousness, there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from your love. Because he is the one, Jesus Christ, he is the one who died for us, who was buried, who rose again, and now he is interceding for us at your right hand. Father, we thank you for the sure hope that we have in Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today that does not yet know your son, Jesus, as Savior, that, Lord, you would do your calling work in their hearts and open their minds and hearts to believe, to see that Jesus is their Savior and that through him and him alone they may find life and eternal hope. For those of us, Lord, who tend to, from time to time, have doubts and fears and start to put confidence in our own flesh and our own abilities, remind us, Lord, that our salvation depends upon you through your Son, Jesus Christ, and not upon ourselves. We thank you for the hope that we have in the glorious good news of the gospel. Bless us as your people, Lord, and thank you that you will bring every single one of your sheep home as the good shepherd. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.